0: If you do have your Bibles, we're returning to Romans, um, Romans 13. Well, given that um, we've got a small event taking place on Tuesday, um, I I thought it would be timely to speak about uh, what the Bible has to say about government. So we have national elections. um, I I believe many of you probably voted already. Um, Many more will vote um, this coming Tuesday. And so it just seems to be an appropriate time, maybe a teachable moment, um, just to look at one of these key scriptural passages that talk about um, uh, the government, um, the biblical perspective uh, concerning it and our relationship towards it. Um, So that's where we're, we're going. And as we talk about these things and, and as we think about an election that's uh, uh, approaching, um, we, this is a reminder from last week's uh, sermon theme, <laughs> God is sovereign. <laughs> he is um, uh, He's working all things for good, right? Um, including elections. And so our trust has to be in him regardless of what the outcome will be. And we can trust that God is good. Would you stand then for the reading of the Word of God? Romans 13:1 through7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, To whom honor is owed. Would you bow your heads with me? King of kings and Lord of lords, we do bow before you and recognize your authority over us and over all the nations. Lord, help us to better understand by your spirit what your word has to say about our relationship to civil governments. And may you bless your people with all manner of spiritual wisdom, not because we deserve it but so that your name may be more greatly glorified for the sake of King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So where I want to start with is the foundations. Um, as we think about government, as we think really about all, um, uh, well, uh, biblical institutions that have been instituted uh, by God, um, the foundation here is that government is a God-given institution. It's not something that just arbitrarily arose in time and in history, but something that was uh, established uh, by God, that has been designed by God. And we can um, reason that if it is from God, the state, um, I'm thinking, I'll use terms like the state, government, civil authorities, magistrate, all really synonymously referring to our governing authorities. But when the governing authorities are operating within their God-given boundaries— government is a gift. Christians are to see government as a gift and a blessing and a blessing from God. And just like a healthy church or a healthy family, when government is operating with good and wise leadership, it is a blessing to its people. So as Christians, we can say right from the, the, the get-go, we are not anarchists. Okay, we we um, believe in the rightful place of government and governing authorities. There are three primary institutions. And so this is just a, a way to kind of orient our mind to how the uh, Bible approaches um, uh, kind of these building blocks of society. And within society, the, these three great building blocks that we see from the very beginning in Genesis going onward. And these three primary institutions are the family. This is the basic building block, okay, uh, for all other institutions. So there's the family. Second, there is the the people of God. In the New Testament period, we refer to that as the church. And then third, there is this third great institution established by God, and that is the state or the government. Now, that's not to say that there aren't lots and lots of other institutions, that is, these organized um, uh, uh, pl- uh, groups of people who organize themselves in order to accomplish certain goals that you could not accomplish as individuals, okay? So we, we are natural. We create businesses, and we create educational institutions and so forth for the good of the community. But these are the three key um, institutions, the family, the church, and the state, Each institution of these three have their particular roles and purposes that are specific to each institution, okay? So not only does God create these different institutions, but he assigns to them certain roles, certain responsibilities um, uh, that are in some way specific to a particular institution. For instance, it is the primary duty of the family to raise and educate children and if they're believers, to do so in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? It's not really the church's job to, to uh, train and educate children, and nor is it really the the uh, primary role of the government or the state. This is something the Lord has given to uh, parents. Now, they can delegate that, of course, but, but that's where the, the responsibility lies. Why? Because they care the most. So there's a wisdom to why God has um, assigned these particular roles and responsibilities. It is the duty of the church to provide and guard for corporate worship of Almighty God, of the triune God, and to be diligent in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that the nations around the world are discipled, so that they're discipled through the teachings of Christ and through baptism. Now, of course, you can see this is A very specific role that's given to the church. If the church tries to be all things to all people and it loses sight of its primary mission, then it's failed. Even if it does lots of really great other things. But see, most other things can be done by other institutions. There are specific things that only the church can do, providing um, worship that is pleasing to God Almighty and the spread of the gospel. And then we come to the state. The state, and, and we'll come to this more um, uh, later, but it is the primary role of the state to promote justice, public order, and safety. Okay? So justice, public order, and safety. And we'll, we'll come back to that. Now, there are certain implications then that flow out of the way God has designed um, uh, and instituted these uh, the state. Well, let's let's stay there. And one of the the very first things that we can conclude that on the basis that this is a God established institution is that the government is not a law unto itself. Okay. Um, the government uh, also is limited and bounded by the laws that govern our land. So uh, there was a book written by Samuel Rutherford you know, a few centuries ago um, called Lex Rex. Well, what that means is the law is king. Well, what would be the reverse? The king is the law, you know, that the, the, the government becomes a law unto itself. That is, you know, because they're in power, they can just choose whatever they want to do and nobody can stop them and they have that right. Well, the Bible says, no, that's not the way it works. Um, all people, including um, the king, including the magistrate, the president of the United States, are bound by the laws uh, that govern uh, the nation. We are all alike under law, including the king. We should also um, recognize um, not only is that that they're under the law, but second, this also means that um, as Christians— we should understand that there is a proper um, sense that government should be limited. Okay, there, there's a sense that the Bible points to the reality of the best kind of government is a limited government. Now, this works in two directions. Number one, it's just because of the way God's designed it. If God has um, given the families, for instance, the primary role of of determining the education for their children. Well, this means that the government really um, should, you know, they can provide some basic uh, means of education and make sure the poorest of the poor can seek education, but it's not their primary job. They do not care about children the way parents care about their children. They should be limited then. This means that the government cannot just be all things. The government cannot determine the leadership of churches, Even if they don't like the leadership of churches and they don't like what the preachers are preaching, that is not within their jurisdiction. What the Bible is saying, based on the fact that God has established these institutions with specific roles and responsibilities, that means each institution has to learn to stay in their lane. We all got to stay in our lane. Now, that's not to say there isn't overlap because we do, you know, going back to the education piece, we have Sunday school classes for all ages. But we see that as um, uh, coming underneath and supporting the families and doing so, of course, always recognizing the primary disciplers and educators are the parents. Um, there's overlap in these things, to be sure. All, all, you know, government, families, um, churches we all should be concerned about the poor and the needs of the poor. So we, we recognize their overlap, but we also recognize there are limits um, to what each institution can do, OK? And then there's a second reason why Christians believe in limited government. And this is a theological truth. As you're moving through the Old Testament, and you see what happens when these kings uh, accumulate more and more power to themselves. It's not um, just by chance, for instance, that in Daniel chapter 7, when it's envisioning these four kingdoms, first the Babylonian kingdom, and then the the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans— it pictures and symbolizes each of these kingdoms with beasts. Why? Because governments naturally, they naturally develop Messiah complexes. They naturally think they can do more than they can actually do, that they have the power to change hearts, uh, and, and, and that they have the power to, in a sense, bring heaven to earth. And when they develop this kind of messiah complex, it's a God complex, they become beastly in order to achieve um, objectives that are not properly uh, belonging to them. okay? When they begin to try to re engineer society in a certain direction um, uh, because they have a certain vision of what things should look like, they be- can easily become beastly. And where, when these governments become beastly, here's what happens. They, they begin to view themselves as a law unto themselves, and then they go after the people who are telling them, you can't do that. <laughs> and historically, at least in the West, that's been Christians trying to tell them, going all the way back to the New Testament period, you know, we're, we're not going to bow to Caesar. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And as long as we continue with that basic confession, we're telling the the government and the kings and the presidents, they cannot do whatever they want to do. And the result of this always, um, through history, leads to uh, various degrees of uh, first restrictions on religious liberties, uh, and then just, frankly, persecution. That's where this goes, And so, for these reasons, we do have a biblical foundation for seeking those who would uh, maintain limited government. And now, with all that said, um, we just come to Paul's main exhortation for believers. He starts with this right away. Um, this This is where he begins. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, what is he saying? We must ordinarily obey our governing authorities. That's pretty simple, straightforward. Um, and, and again, the fa- why? Well, he, he gives us the foundation. Because government has its origins in God. Because government was established by God. Because he appoints um, our leaders by his sovereign providence. Um, we must ordinarily be subject to these governing authorities. There is a sense that, as Paul works out his argument, that by placing ourselves under governmental authority, we're actually placing ourselves properly under God's authority. We're we're showing actually our honor and obedience to the Lord. And it's also, when we do so um, for Christian convictions, we're recognizing that ultimately we're not in the hands of a president or, you know, uh, the Supreme Court justices, or, or, or whoever it is, the governor. Um, ultimately, our fate and destiny is in the hand of God. From Genesis onward, we see that God has established uh, government and governing authorities. Um, and, and so, therefore, to rebel against these governments um, is to rebel against God. It, it also means um, what he's warning as he works through this and just begin in verse 3 here. Um, uh, well, verse 2 Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, now he's speaking to the Christians at Rome, resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Well, where's the judgment going to come? Well, Paul's envisioning is, this, is, um, this is this is going to come from the government. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Now, again, Paul is writing this in the days of an empire, in the days of emperors. Um, And he's also writing this probably to at least a portion of the Roman church are made up of Jewish Christians. Do you remember what the Jewish um, relationship was with the Roman empire and leadership? They hated the Roman Empire for placing Israel, the Israelites, under their thumb. Oh, they resisted this. And so these would have been, you know, maybe not so hard words for us, but very difficult for uh, many of the members of the Roman church uh, to whom the Apostle Paul is writing. And so there's reason, um, not only for the fear of punishment that we should obey, but in verse 5. He says this, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now that's interesting. So there's a negative, you know, you don't want to be punished. You don't want to be fined and penalized unnecessarily. Um, but on the positive side, he says, there's a sense of conscience. There's a sense that even within, and he doesn't even limit this to Christians. But within just human conscience, there is a sense that we ought to follow the authorities, that we know that this is actually, in general, a good thing for us to do and to demonstrate. Um, In the scriptures, authority um, is a really important theme. It goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments, to the Fifth Commandment specifically. Children, children, Uh, honor your father, or just honor your father and and your mother. And this is a commandment that is also attached a a lifelong blessing. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We say, well, how does honoring your mother and father have anything to do with the government? (laughs) Well, biblically and theologically, these commands actually are like an umbrella and what the fifth command is promoting is not just a respect for parental authority, but all God-given authority. It's been understood. The fifth commandment has been understood to recognize and, and to, um, uh, uh, to promote the, the respect for, you know, local authority and, and, uh, uh respect for police and for, uh, those, uh, who God just places over us to recognize that biblically speaking, authority is a really powerful principle. And when we understand that authority is for our good, and generally speaking, we recognize in a fallen world, authority can um, uh, be distorted. It can be misused and abusive. We resist that, of course. But in healthy situations, even when we disagree with the authorities, we're called to submit ourselves to them because this is a powerful way in which God governs the world and how he governs human societies. And his goal is for human flourishing. And, not, and so important is this, that he tells us within the, the family system that for children who sometimes vehemently disagree with their parents, that if you nevertheless submit to their authority, this will lead to lifelong blessing. Don't miss that so critical is this theme and principle of authority that God says, if you will submit yourselves to God-given authority, this will lead to blessing, okay? And so, for this reason, from conscience, we are to um, respect the authorities. In Romans 13, verses 6 and 7, he continues, for the same reason, you also pay taxes. Ouch. For the authorities are ministers of God. He's stressing this even the Roman pagan emperor is a minister of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue revenue to whom revenue is owed and so forth. Now, okay, so this is where um, uh, we, we, we do recognize this is one of the ways we can show our respect for authority. Not cheating our taxes. Paying what's owed. Now, with that said is when we go to vote, we do have a, a choice and often about the degree and level of those taxes. And it's, it's interesting in the Old Testament, when the people come to the prophet Samuel and they say, we want a king. We want to be the other nations who are powerful and strong. They have kings. We want a king. And Samuel says, he goes to the Lord, and the Lord tells him, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're actually rejecting me as their king. But you go and tell them. And as he goes, you warn them, I will give them what they want. But if they get what they want, one of the warnings he gives to them is that the king will tax them 10% of all their increase. Wow, to have a 10% flat tax... Yeah, I was just looking it up, and um, did you know you have to work, at the, and this was, I think, 2019, um, the average person had to work until April 16 to pay for all of their federal, state, local taxes. So tax freedom day, the first day where what you, you earned would actually, you would keep, was April 16th last year, okay, which works out to something like 28% Um, uh, of all our income goes to some form of tax. Now, obviously, for some, it's going to be higher. For others, it's going to be lower. But that is the the average. 10% in the Old Testament was viewed as tyranny. Okay. You do with that what you will. Now, with that being said, um, ordinarily, we are required to render obedience to the governing authorities. There are occasions when Christians must resist the magistrate. Uh, one probably the key passage is Acts um, chapter 5, verse 27 through 29. And this is where the authorities in Jerusalem came to the apostles, to Peter as their spokesman, and said, you must cease proclaiming uh, the good news in the name of this crucified man, Jesus. Okay? You must cease and desist, from all of your uh, free speech, from your pro- uh, public proclamation in the name of Jesus. Now, this is their response. This is Peter. And when they had brought them, um, that is, the rulers, they set them, the apostles, before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, okay? So clear defiance of the authorities. But Peter and the apostles answered, and here is our principle, we must obey God rather than men. There are times where the governing authorities become beastly, and the Old Testament has already prepared the Apostle Paul uh, and the Apostles for this reality. Think Daniel, living in a beastly government where, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or, or some other king, couldn't help but take upon themselves these kind of divine pretensions, these godlike pretensions, so that if you don't bow down to that statue, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, you will be cast into the fiery furnace. Well, at that point, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego had no choice but to defy the king, to refuse to bow down, even at the cost, potentially. And they believed that they would lose their lives, but they were willing to do so. And for the same reason, Daniel, when told not to pray to anyone else other than the king, well, what did he do? Three times a day, right in front of his window, (laughs) very publicly, He's bowing down and praying to the Lord um, three times a day, violating the great um, Persian edict. As a result, he's thrown into the lion's den where God once again redeems and he saves his people. But there are occasions um, where we may be called to resist the governing authorities because what's happening is they are overstepping their boundaries they are, in a certain sense, they're, they're defying um, the design by which God has um, established communities and established these spheres. Fe- these now, uh, this is the, the very line of reasoning that has led John MacArthur and Grace Community Church in Pasadena, California, to defy the government's order. Uh, so the government said that, um, uh, that the, the churches no longer can meet um, of a certain size. Now, the reason why the church has resisted this, and they've continued to meet, and now it's being um, uh, it, it's being prosecuted in the uh, legal system, is because part of the reason for this was the governor has allowed for other groups, protesters, for instance, to gather, and the governor has um, categorized those events as essential. And the reason why he can um, prohibit churches from meeting is because they have come under the the category of non-essential or unessential gatherings. And so for this reason, (laughs) Pastor MacArthur and other churches uh, uh, in California are resisting the authorities in this matter. Samuel Rutherford, um, again, in his book Lex Rex, he gives us, I think, some help about thinking about what this might look like. Rutherford argued that when conditions warranted it, individuals could resist and might even have the duty to resist the state officials in three ways. First, by protest. We've seen a lot of that going on, and, and, um, uh, but first is, um, uh, protesting. Second, by fleeing the situation where possible. As Christians, we're not looking for a fight. We're not, this is not our, this is not where we're coming from. If we can, um, in, in certain uh, situations, just flee the situation where possible, we should do so. But where that proves impossible, or it just doesn't make sense, then defending oneself, even by force, if necessary, may be warranted. Um, and of course, that would be very serious. And, but this was part of the thinking, let's face it, um, uh, at the time of the revolution, the war for independence. This was the very thinking that led them um, to resist the king of England. I almost said the king of Egypt, but that's the way they viewed him, but uh, king George. Now, let me just work through one, the basic responsibility. I'm not going to work through all of these because I don't have time, but, but if you're following in your outlines, um, the, the main responsibility and that the, the apostle addresses in Romans 13 is the responsibility of maintaining justice, maintaining justice in the land. This is by far and away the key job, the role, the main role that governments have. Now, let's, let's talk about um, um, so this is specific to the government. The Apostle Paul says in, in verse 4 For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, that image of a sword is a very, um, uh, uh, that's, that's very stark imagery. The sword was used in capital punishment, and it becomes a symbol here for the government's right to, in prosecuting justice, To execute sentences and penalties. It may be fines, it may be imprisonment. It may lead up to capital punishment, which the Bible supports um, where it's warranted, especially in the cases of capital murder. That's very clear in Genesis. So, um, and this is where this is not the job of the church. Historically, there have been times where the church has not understood, they've not stayed in their lane, and they have tried to apply government penalties in order to enforce theological correctness. Okay? Think Inquisition or something along those lines. Um, This is the church getting out of their bounds. Or think about a family. Let's say someone comes in and kidnaps and, and perhaps even murders a child. As much as that father... Would want to go and find those responsible and execute them. And you say there's a certain justice in that, of course, but it's not his job. It's not his role or responsibility. This is specifically given to the government. Why? Because the government can look at the situation dispassionately. You see, there's a reason for why God has assigned certain roles and responsibilities to these different organizations, because in, in this case, a father who's in, enacting revenge in his heat and anger will be sorely tempted to go far beyond what justice demands. And so we allow the government to, to handle these situations dispassionately. For this reason, Christians are opposed to vigilanteism. So the government has been given this, um, uh, this, this responsibility of justice, Justice is to be blind in the respect that it shows no regard for wealth or ethnicity or status. Biblical justice is fair. It is equitable to all alike, um, and this is a primary role of the state. The making of just laws and enforcing them with fairness uh, is a primary job. And they also have to be careful not to move in the opposite direction of showing bias to the poor. Listen to Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. The one responsibility that the Apostle Paul singles out is his concern for maintaining justice. And so when we are voting— Okay, for legislat- legislators and, and uh, governors and presidents and, and uh, justices and um, and so forth, a primary consideration should be: Are these wise individuals? Are they discerning individuals? Can they they ne- can they know morally which ways up and which ways down? And, and let me move just in, into um, it's a, it's a little bit of a hot-button issue here. Um, this is where I want to bring just the concerns for the well-being of the unborn. If you cannot see that the unborn is human life, and I was just reading um, a scientific journal about um, biologists, 95% of them, most of whom were not politically conservative at all, um, said that, yes, from the moment of conception on, um, the unborn is human life. What else could it be, of course? Okay, what else could it be? It is human life. And so, if there are those, then, who cannot recognize that the application of the law, do not murder, do not take innocent life, if it doesn't include all human life, if it is okay to dismember babies in the womb and pull them out, if it's okay you know, to yank them out until their head is in and then suck out the brains and then crush their skull, if that is not unjust and despicable and horrible, how can we vote for that person? And so I am saying, this is a straight line biblical and theological principle when it comes to justice. And this is the issue of our day. This is our specific political issue. In Nazi Germany, it was the Holocaust. In in, uh, antebellum America, it was slavery. But this is our issue. And abortion is not like other issues, like racism or fair labor laws or climate change. Uh, Those are really about quality of life. But here we are literally talking life or death. In 2017, just a couple stats, 862,000 abortions, that comes out to about 2,362 abortions per day, okay? So all that to say, as you vote, we need to vote for those who will, in fact, uh, be able to discern and maintain justice. Well, especially in the coming days, we should really be praying Um, and, and probably fasting, too. Um, just really praying and fasting in these last few days of the election um, for for God to have mercy and for God to put in place individuals who are both competent and wise and who understand um, uh, these principles concerning government and the importance of real justice. Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks for the good gift of governmental authority have mercy on our leaders. We do pray for them, grant them wisdom, and grant the citizens of this nation wisdom and discernment as they vote on the candidates and issues in the coming days. We know that you are enthroned on high, that you are in control of all things, and in this we do take comfort. And as you've granted us redemption, we ask for your protection. In the coming weeks, direct our minds by your strong presence, and watch over our path with your guiding love. And may all of our actions be noble for the sake of the name of King Jesus. Amen.